I want to ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and if you'll read along silently as I read aloud. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we draw closer to the beginning of a new year, I think there's probably no time like now to be saturated with what God's Word says about God's Word, really what God has said about His Word. This is a biblical bibliology. You know, those of you who have been through enough systematic theology, you recognize that term bibliology from the Greek terms biblios, Logos. It's a study of the Bible. There's a sense in which a bibliology is a Bible study. What we're talking about when we use the term bibliology is what the Bible says about itself. And here is a very, very concentrated expression of that very matter, what God has said about his word. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, and many of you will remember our recent study in this passage, Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is the declaration that he, Peter, and others literally witnessed the majesty in the actual figure of the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. So he comes to the reader, he comes to those who would read this passage with that authority, with that credibility. We were there. As the Apostle John has said, we touched him. Peter would essentially be saying the same thing here. He says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And that's all he says. He doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't even point to that as the basis of what he's about to say. He makes the declaration, we were there, we heard the voice of the Father say, well done to his Son, and then he moves on. And he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. There's a sense in which Peter is dismissing what some might think to be a greater significance of his experience as over against the significance of the Word of God. He's doubling down here to say that the more sure prophetic word is what we lean on. It's what we look to. We don't look to our experience. He does nothing to say because of that experience, now this In fact, it's a rather stark and abrupt transition into the sufficiency of Scripture. Again, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And next time you hear someone say, God told me, ask them if this is what they're talking about. And that ought to be the sound test by which they determine whether or not God actually told them that. This is a real problem in our Christian society. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a description of God's word by God, and it's exclusive. He doesn't give that description to anything else. The man of God, 
the shepherd teacher, the pastor, is called to do good works. And in our passage this morning, Paul tells Timothy where the help, the hope, even the foundation, the criteria, the information, the data by which he would do those good works comes. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul names four pastor-equipping features of God's breathed-out words so that you may know you are being sufficiently taught and may live a godly life. This is what the man of God needs in order to equip you rightly for a life that is pleasing to the Lord. I've told you many times before that it is never a temptation to me to be innovative. It never crosses my mind. I never sit in my office or in my car when I'm driving around or in bed at night trying to go to sleep. I'm never, in fact, that's rarely ever happened to me, trying to go to sleep. I go to bed and I go to sleep. I'm thinking about God's Word, not thinking about what can I do to make it more creative? What can I do to get people to be more excited about being here? I never, ever think about that. And I tell you that only to tell you that if there's anything that you can pray for me about, it would be something else. Spend your time praying for me in other areas, not this area, because I am passionately and deeply and in a lifelong sense committed to the idea that the Word of God is, in fact, what it says it is. It's sufficient for all the needs of the human soul. Earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of Him. And as you can see from what we just looked at there in 2 Peter chapter 1, the context of that passage is the sufficiency of the Word of God. And the Word of God alone is what's necessary for the man of God to be equipped. I want to take a careful look at the passage now with you. Beginning in verse 16, as you see, Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The word Scripture here in itself is not necessarily a religious or an exclusively biblical term. It's graphe, which simply means writing or Scripture. It's the word from which we get our words graph, graphic, and graffiti. These words have to do with written or visible expression, thus the word Scripture. So it's a general term for writing, but for God's purposes in His Word, the Bible, it's used to speak of His writings. It's God's graphe, God's writing, God's Scripture. And here, according to Paul, all of it is not only His, but it is breathed out by Him. The matter of being God-breathed has to do with origin. The idea of being breathed out by God simply means that it is from Him. It originated with Him, from His heart. It is at the heart of the issue because it is from the heart of the author. He is the author. He is the author of all Scripture. All Scripture is authored by God or inspired by God. In John 10, 35, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. And that is because it's from God. You know that the prophet Isaiah has said that God's Word will not return void. And you may have had some experience where you've thought, gee, it sure seems like it returned void. The issue is, what do we understand about the purpose behind God's Word? Another issue is, was it really delivered? Was it really given out? Was that really God's Word, or was it some mitigated expression, some erroneous expression of God's Word? And as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of catchphrases in our society that most people, maybe a lot of people, think are actually reflective of Scripture. And when you really begin to look at Scripture itself, break it down, look at what it really says, many times you'll find that a lot of the things that you thought and were actually told from a pulpit somewhere, maybe week after week after week after week, are actually not in Scripture. So we need to understand, when Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken, he's talking about Scripture. He's not talking about man's effort to mess it up or to make it more quippy or more exciting or more vibrant or more entertaining. That will return void. 
In fact, in many cases, men build churches, some really large churches. There are some wonderful and faithful large churches, but there are a lot of large churches that are built by a man, and he should get credit for building that church, but it's not a church. It's a lot of effort to do things that are entertaining. Some of you will remember that Mark Dever has said, what we win them with is what we must keep them with. And so if we are committed to Scripture, then we can trust that the Lord will use Scripture to win people, and He will keep those whom He wins with Scripture. It ought to be a commitment on your part at the point where you see someone diverting from Scripture in their lifestyle, in their doctrine, that you would graciously and lovingly, having built a platform of a relationship with that person, be able to sit down with him or her and say, it would seem as if you're diverting from Scripture, whereas if you only attempt to win that person and keep that person with flattery and gift-giving and whatever other source of efforts to manipulate and keep that person, you'll find that those things will fall far short of maintaining long-lasting and rich and spirit-filled, helpful relationships. Nothing wrong with gift-giving, by the way, but the issue is what's the heart behind it? Is there a desire for someone to actually know and love and embrace the Scripture? In Matthew 26, verse 54, Jesus spoke of his own betrayal. It's an expression of his understanding of and belief in God's sovereignty. In his own betrayal, he said, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That Jesus' betrayal, even his death, his execution, came in one sense, as a result of God's sovereign decree in the Scripture. We know specifically and very graphically from Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be killed. It was God's eternal plan for Jesus to suffer for the sins of mankind. So when someone says he feels inspired to do or say something, he should be careful. He doesn't communicate the idea that it was God who was doing the inspiring unless he's talking about God-breathed Scripture. You can't say that God inspired you to write a song or a book or to send a text to your wife. You can't say your great-grandmother's pot roast recipe must have been inspired by God, although sometimes I'm tempted to say that about my wife's cooking, I'll be honest. The fact is she's just a very good cook, very committed to cooking amazing food for her family. The recipes aren't inspired by God. You can say that song or that poem is faithful to God and faithful to Scripture because it accurately reflects Scripture. Or that sermon or even that counseling session or my friend's good advice was faithful to God and Scripture, if in fact it was. But you should reserve the idea of inspiration to that which we know came directly from God as he breathed it out. And he declared it to be breathed out, inspired. A lot of folks want to say, God told me this or wait on God to speak to you. I'd say better not to wait, but start reading what he wrote to you. My dear friend Rob Sines likes to respond to that idea of God told me by saying, did you get that in writing? When you say God told me, you're saying thus saith the Lord. It's the same thing. It's just different English. You're saying it just as the Old and New Testament prophets said it. Listen to this stark warning in Proverbs 30. Listen to this, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So often you will hear someone say, I've got some things to tell you and I can back it up with Scripture. That's backwards. It's the wrong way to think about God's Word. What we ought to be doing is digging deeply into God's Word, engaging in sound, faithful hermeneutics, the study of study, how to study properly, looking at God's Word for what it actually says in its context, and then saying things 
as a result of that, believing what we believe based on what we know God's Word to be saying. Rather than saying, I've heard some stuff, you know, I think I can find it in the Bible to back it up. That's a red flag. When you hear, especially a preacher, say, I'm telling you this stuff and I can back it up with Scripture. It, it, it communicates laziness. He's not willing to simply do the work in the Scripture and to trust those who have done the faithful work in Scripture in order to be able to arrive at proper conclusions and then com- communicate them clearly and graciously. Revelation twenty-two eighteen, 18, many of you are familiar with, provides another warning for us. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. You say, well, why is it such a big deal to say God told me? That's why. You say, well, I don't really mean that. Well, then say what you mean, right? Why confuse people? Many of you have heard me tell the story about the first time I heard this terminology. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college. I was brand new to anything Christian. And there was this really bubbly girl who kept saying, God told me. And then one day between classes, as we were walking together from one class to another, she was smiling and laughing. And she said, oh, you're not going to believe this. The other day I was talking to Jesus and he was telling me some stuff and it was so cool. And I was like, oh my word, you're kidding. That is so great. I mean, that is so fun to hear that. That's cool. And I'm thinking, is that really how it works? It sounds kind of cool, but that sounds kind of odd. And no, that's not how it works. She turned out to be apostate, by the way, which shouldn't surprise us. The person who's bent on or driven by hearing something new, new revelation, wanting to add to what God's Word has said is living quite dangerously. Here are some folks who lived dangerously. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. You get the idea here? So the prophet is communicating the fact that God, in fact, communicated to him to warn those who are saying things that are coming out of their own hearts. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. They haven't seen anything, but they want you to think they have. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Those who say, the Lord declared this, the Lord said this, the Lord told me this, when in fact the Lord didn't do that. And this is a dire warning against these false prophets. Verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. So you can trust this. The Lord's actually speaking here. Thus says the Lord, Because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. This is not a harmless offense, the person who says the Lord told me. He says, I'm against you when you say you have a word from me, and in fact, you don't. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. So many of these folks these days, and I've often called it cherry picking. If you go on to TBN, they're easy to find. Heidi Baker, one of the greatest offenders of this idea of saying the Lord told me. The woman's 
just literally out of her mind. She claims to have done healings and saved people all over the world. What she's doing is extracting money for them, and she's getting extremely wealthy. And if you were to Google Heidi Baker, one of the first things you'd probably see is a video of her on stage where she's probably drunk. And I don't mean drunk with the Holy Spirit, but literally drunk. And the reason I think that is because she says it. And she rolls around on the stage, and people are screaming and cheering and acting as if this is of the Lord. It's so very common nowadays. One of the things that's become extremely troubling to me, and you may have seen this on some social media, is the idea that lots and lots of Muslims are coming to know Jesus because Jesus is appearing to them in a dream. Have you seen this? You know, I've seen Christians posting this on their Facebook pages, thousands of Muslims coming to know Jesus, and I have yet to see one testimony of the actual gospel from one of those supposed former Muslims. Something's happening. You know, somebody who claims to be Jesus is apparently coming to them in a vision. But let me assure you, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. If you know anything about Islam, you know that it's all based on dreams and visions. It's just one more false vision. It's one more false experience. You say, well, what about the people who really do know Jesus now? Show me one. And I'm more than willing to take a look at that. But so far, I haven't seen anything that shows any evidence that any of these people are really coming to know Christ because there's no apparent devotion to the gospel. It's only by the gospel that people are saved, not by dreams and visions. But again, this is very prevalent in our day. Well, in an effort for you and me to grow in godliness... And really for you to be able to test whether or not a man of God is in fact a man of God. I have four points for you this morning. As I said, Paul names four pastor-equipping features of God's breathed-out word so that you may know you are being sufficiently taught and may actually live a godly life. Point number one, God's breathed-out word is profitable for teaching. Word for word out of verse 16. This idea of being profitable means advantageous. It means beneficial or useful. So God's breathed out word is useful for teaching. That's useful for teaching. God doesn't say this about anything else in his word as far as being useful for teaching. He says his inspired scripture is useful for teaching his people. Why would you look for anything else? Why would you want God to give you more information? Why would the man of God need more information? When God has said here, his breathed out word is sufficient. In fact, it's profitable. It's useful. In Titus 2, verse 1, Paul says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You could uh, translate that term teaching as doctrine. In fact, some translations do. Verse 2 then, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. You see what ought to be happening in a man's life as he gets older? A man who claims to have been in the faith for 5, 10, 15 years, who is really like a sail without a ship? I know, you think I messed up the metaphor. No, I meant exactly that, a sail without a ship. He's moved by any form of doctrine, just about anything causes him to say, oh, I don't know, what about that? He's not committed to discipleship. He's not committed to receiving input from older, more godly men. But the man who would be the man of God, Paul describes here as verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. They persevere. This, by the way, is a mark of what it means to have been elected before the foundations of the earth. We call it the perseverance of the saints. Verse 3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, take a close look here. And Many of you will remember a Mother's Day message I did a few years ago where we emphasized this. Paul is not telling Titus here to teach women. He's telling Titus to tell women to teach women. It's very different. They're to teach 
what is good. Older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about this. You see the ramifications of faithfulness to sound teaching? that you would be able to rebuke, to correct those who communicate false doctrine. See, the Word of God, the God-breathed Word of God, the Word of God that is inspired by God, authored by God, is in fact useful for teaching. And as we said, to the exclusion of all other resources. It's not to say that you can't use some study guide. We send you a study guide every two weeks encouraging you to use that study guide. But what does that study guide do? It teaches you what often folks have called an inductive method, which is really a rebuke of a deductive method, right? That you wouldn't be deducing things. Well, the Bible says this, therefore this, therefore this, therefore this, therefore this. No, no, no. You stick with the text. That's why that observation section is just gold, isn't it? We, We sometimes call it observation points or instructions. We just walk you through the passage. What does the passage say in your language, in English? Just work through that. The whole point of those questions is what I like to call the Jeopardy game. The answers are there. So you have the answers. We write the questions. We send you the questions, and you find the answers. And now you're in the Word, and that's the whole purpose. And then the interpretive phase, where you're really trying to grapple with what sometimes is difficult to understand. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us the natural man doesn't discern the Word of God. He can't, it says. His mind is not illumined. But even the spiritual man who appraises all things needs to work at it. He needs to engage in spirit-filled study, spirit-filled reception of God's Word from a faithful man of God who's teaching the Word of God for what it actually is. The faithful man of God will not only teach sound doctrine, he will refute sound doctrine, and he will train people to refute sound doctrine. Well, number two, God's breathed out word is profitable for reproof. This is a term that we don't often use in our vernacular, but it's an important one to Scripture. You might replace it with the word rebuke. Rebuke. Or even for a very practical understanding, uncover. Being a Christian involves correction, receiving it and giving it. If you're not engaged in some relationship or relationships where there's some correction going on, kind of back and forth, then you're really missing out. I would even go so far as to say you might not actually be involved in Christian relationships if there's not some giving and receiving of correction on a mutual basis. I met with the elders of our church Thursday night, and one of the great joys for us is to instruct one another, to hear one another, to listen to one another. I encourage you to come to our meetings. Come to the open session and listen and see how we interact. It's always a joy. It's always a blessing. Sometimes there's a lot of laughter, but there's always a lot of really deep sincere discussion related to how we can honestly and faithfully and effectively shepherd the flock of God among us. Many times, I myself receive really sound instruction. And that's so important to me to receive that. And in some cases, it's because my thinking has not been what it should have been. It's going to be the case for the rest of my life. I need correction. But it starts with a reproof. Sometimes you need to be strong and gracious and loving and willing to say to someone, it seems to me you're wrong here. Before a correction comes, there must be a willingness to point out that the correction is necessary, and that's what this is. Here's a case study for us in Hebrews 4. 
And I want to start by verse 12, which is more of an indicative, but then we'll get to the case study. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See that? The word of God is the spiritual surgeon. The word of God divides that which is indivisible, soul and spirit. The soul and the spirit are the same thing. And so the writer of Hebrews here uses two similar words, which really are synonymous, to say that the Word of God actually separates that which is inseparable. That's the idea. He says it separates joints and marrow. In the day in which this was written, that was not something that was done. It separates that which is seemingly inseparable. It discerns or it judges. The Greek term krino here means to judge or assess the thoughts and the intentions of man. The proverb says a man's way seems right to him until another comes to judge him. Oh, friend, if you're in the habit of thinking that you are wise enough to manage your own thought life alone without regular and careful assessment from godly people, you have fooled yourself. The man of God ought not ever to do that. One of the great joys for me in my parenting is that I have you. I have you, many of whom probably have a much more accurate assessment of my children than I will ever have. And I need you to help me and I maybe even need you at times to rebuke me and to tell me where you think that I may have failed. But the Word of God is the source of that. It's God's inspired, perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, breathed-out, authored Word by which we are to think about these things and help one another. Verse 13 in Hebrews 4 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's a lot of talk about accountability in the book of Hebrews. And all that accountability ultimately goes back to dependence upon and a passion for the sufficiency of God's word. So back up with me in Hebrews 4, back to verse 1, where it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then Hebrews 4.12, which speaks of the work of the word of God to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Those who did not receive the promise those who didn't reach the promise, those who thought they had rest ahead of them but didn't have rest ahead of them, those who had fooled themselves did not listen. They did not adhere themselves to that which would have softened their hearts. Again, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a day of rest coming, but not for those who harden their hearts against the word of God. It should be your daily, really moment-by-moment -moment passion to be softened by the power of the Word of God, especially from those who would faithfully deliver it 
to you. But the person who has found himself in a lone wolf type of lifestyle, really pretending, this is far worse, don't you know? It's far worse to be the person who pretends to receive the Word of God and goes away and doesn't. It's far worse. Because you may have actually convinced some people that you actually do. See, in our lives, the proclamation of God's Word does this. In the teaching of God's Word, rebuke is discovered. The person who will receive the teaching of God's Word may actually be rebuked by God's Word in some cases, and no one else will even know it. That's good. A little bit of a time saver. Especially if you respond well to that reproof. But see, the whole idea here is that the man of God who is equipped is equipped with the ability to grapple rightly with the Word of God, not only to teach it, but to use it to reprove, to show what's wrong, to point out how someone's lifestyle is not reflective of the teaching of Scripture. So we've said God's breathed-out Word is profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, but as you know, the text goes on to tell us that God's breathed-out Word is profitable for correction. It's useful for correction. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This may be the best correction that you might ever have received or have given to anyone else. The correction that points to the solution having addressed the rebuke. That which needs to have been addressed is a problem, and then there is a solution for that problem. And the solution is that wisdom is given for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul points to the fact that this is something that Timothy learned from his childhood. He didn't embrace it until his adulthood under Paul's ministry. But he was given these things. He was given this correction. That's why, friends, for those of you who have children, it ought to be your thinking that not only for you, but for our church, for the common good of our church, for we as a local church, our primary and most fundamental evangelistic ministry is our children's ministry. We don't think as the covenant theologian, who I believe fools himself into thinking that every child born to a Christian is in fact of the faith. It's a very, very confusing element of covenant theology. We believe that God uses parents to bring children to Christ. He brings other people within the body of Christ to bring children to Christ. The worst thing you can do, by the way, is create absolute conformity in your children, whereby you will never ever know whether or not your children actually come to know Christ because they're so scared of you, they will simply do everything you tell them to do because they know if they don't, you will punish them severely. And if that's the pattern that you're seeing accomplished in your parenting, or the other side of the coin, where you, you fear your children so much and you want so much for them to come to know Christ that you never correct them. Both are equally wayward, and you need the body of Christ. You need teaching, you need rebuke, and you need correction, and so do I. And we need each other for this. But this correction regarding faith in Christ Jesus comes on the heels of a rebuke rebuke for a wayward lifestyle or a rebuke for a phony lifestyle rooted in some personal man-made Arminian decision that someone made in the past rather than focusing exclusively on the gospel and trusting that the Lord saves whom he will save. He grants mercy to whom he grants mercy, and therefore he gets all the glory and all the credit. In Matthew 18, we see some very careful correction. It gives us the pattern by which Christians should correct those who call themselves Christians. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've won your brother. You've restored your brother. If what? If he listens. I think there is nothing more discouraging to me than the person who pretends to listen who's not listening. There's nothing helpful about pretending to listen. 
Jesus says. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Friends, this is a case, this is an argument for church membership. How in the world do you engage in church discipline with people with whom you have no covenant? You have no commitment, church membership-wise. What are they going to say to you? Who are you? I don't have any commitment to you. You don't have any commitment to me. Well, we're in the body of Christ, aren't we? So what? Go tell your own preacher. You go talk to the people at your own church. You don't have any business telling me that. The sad reality is that there are those within local churches who would say the same thing, but at least we have something in writing. At least we can say, well, you, you said you love Christ. You say you're committed to this local church. At least we can shepherd that person with love, with an arm around the neck rather than a finger in the face by saying, we love you so much, we want to see you restored. And we have an obligation to you. If you keep reading in the book of Hebrews, you get to chapter 13, you see that there is a responsibility for the shepherd, for the souls of those whom he shepherds. It involves a willingness to bring correction, to teach this passage from Matthew 18. Verse 18 goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now you know the context of that most abused verse. The context is church discipline within the context of the church. At some point, you have to tell the church. At some point, you have to tell the church when someone refuses to repent of their sin based on heaven-sent testimony among two or three. It's a beautiful process. And when we trust the Lord together, when we remove the planks from our own eyes before attempting to remove the speck from others' eyes, then the Lord helps us to operate in a way that what is bound on earth was already bound in heaven. God predetermined that it would take place. And so we go forward there with love and confidence, trusting in what the Lord has established would happen, and we act on it because we love the person, not because we want to turn them over to Satan. We want to see them restored in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, what you see here is an expression of that person who appeared to be a Christian because of whatever. Some conduct, some association, maybe even got his way into the membership of the church. But Paul here is addressing that when correction takes place, especially when it's done by the Lord's servant, it's not to be quarrelsome, but with kindness. The ability to teach, which is a requirement of an elder, he's to do it with patience, enduring that person's evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? So that God may grant repentance. Where does repentance come from? It comes from God. God gives repentance. How does it work? Well, on a human level, Paul describes it here as that which is the result of one being caught in sin and then the servant of Christ coming alongside and pointing out that sin with gentleness, not in a quarrelsome manner, but with patience, leading to the knowledge of the truth so that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil because they've been captured by him to do his will. Those folks hide best in the church, right? Because people would say, well, that guy's a churchgoer. He's there almost all the time. He does this stuff. He does that. He's a pretty nice guy, too. And so he hides best, she hides best in the 
context of the church, which is why in the context of the church, church discipline is necessary for the sake of that person. Well, point number four. God's breathed out word is profitable for training in righteousness. And you could say that this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. So we've got teaching, we've got reproof or rebuke, then we've got correction, and then we've got the manner of actually helping a person start to kind of track in a life that follows the footsteps of others who are tracking. It's training. If any of you have ever been through any form of physical training, whether it be in sports or in the military or whatever, you know that it's rigorous. And it doesn't have any dividends unless it's difficult. And maybe with each passing day, you find yourself able to go a little bit farther. You get stronger. You get faster. You maybe become more convinced that you were crazy to decide to do it. But ultimately, you're glad you did because it has the benefits that it has. Spiritual training, as you probably remember from our study in the book of Hebrews a few months ago, works that way. Listen to how Paul says it to Timothy. This is so clear. This is so helpful. For those of you who are wondering, when will I ever get spiritual traction? Listen closely. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's record of Timothy's life and how it worked, how it works. Now, Timothy is a faithful man. Listen to this. You, however, have followed my teaching. Let that sink in. That's what it takes to be willing to follow someone's teaching, someone who is trained, someone who is faithful, someone who is the man of God who is equipped for every good work, but also for you ladies, someone who is worth following. Another lady. Same for you men. Not just listening to sound teaching from a pastor. Connecting yourself to someone who can lead you. He says, you followed my conduct. This is discipleship. You can't follow someone's conduct if you don't spend time with them. You followed my aim in life. You followed my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. That's a gear shift. Not just willing to follow in the good times and enjoy the training, but being willing to put the training into action when persecution comes. And by the way, when he says persecution, he means persecution. He doesn't mean what you and I might often think about in our Americanized way of thinking. Persecution. Although, whatever difficulty you're experiencing might be just exactly what you need in order to be willing to to do all the more to follow someone who's worthy to be followed. He says, my persecutions and sufferings, that happened to be in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. If you want a record of that, read 2 Corinthians 11. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. I'm breathing, I'm alive, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. He goes on to say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, for me, this is the precursor to our text this morning. Do you desire to live a godly life? You see, I know most of you, and I know you do. I know you do. And so the plural noun proposition that I put together for you this morning, the so that statement ends with this idea that you may live a godly life. How? <laughs> By ensuring that you're being taught sufficiently. I'll talk more about that later, but that's kind of your role. Not all of you are gifted to teach, called to teach. You have other gifts which are equally important. But you are called to make sure that you are not desiring for your ears to be tickled but that you hunger after sound teaching that's going to grow you deeper and deeper and deeper. I was criticized by my last employer because I was told that I go too deep. And my response was, my understanding is to 
grow deep, you got to go deep. And you got to stay there, and you got to come up, and you got to go back there. The man who discipled me many years ago said to me, Todd, you need to learn to think deep theological thoughts. And when I began to make some legitimate effort to plumb the deeper depths of God's word, specifically regarding God's character, was when I began to realize how extremely shallow I was. Paul continues here by saying to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ." Cling closely to what you have learned because of the character of the person you learned it from. Person who proved to be trustworthy. But again, what are we ultimately talking about here? Verse 17 says, that the man of God may be complete. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He's not writing to you. It's not to say that this letter is not for you. But it is to say that your role might be different from what you thought in the past. Years ago when I became the principal of a Christian school, there was a passage pulled out of context out of 2 Timothy, which had been the school verse. And it had to do with teaching. Why? Because the school was filled with teachers. So one of the first things I did was I exposed the fact that that passage is for the man who pastors the church and teaches the Bible. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these Things. Now remember, he's speaking to Timothy. He's speaking to the man of God who should be made complete. He should be equipped for every good work. So he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you, by prophecy, when the council of elders laid hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And then I love this. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, on your life and on your doctrine. Keep a close watch on them, which obviously includes asking others to help you keep a close watch on them. He says, Persist in this for. By so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we're back to this idea that it's about being devoted to the Word of God. The man of God who is equipped for every work depends exclusively upon the all-sufficient Word of God, the God-breathed, authored Word of God, the Word that He authored so that the man of God would in fact be complete equipped for every good work. So how do you respond to this? What's your response? First, let me say that it's not your responsibility to be the man of God made complete by God's breathed out word, which is profitable for equipping him for every good work, unless you are. Either you are or you aren't, but the truth is Paul is speaking here to Timothy, a young pastor, a man of God. Your role is to ensure that you are being equipped, but also to be involved in the equipping. Your role in the equipping might very likely be different from the man of God's role, the pastor's role, the shepherd's role. So Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See how that works? So if you are faithfully receiving the word of God from a faithful man of God who is complete, equipped for every good work, the word of God is going to do its work in you. That's how it works. That's how sanctification works. You wonder, why am I not growing? One of those elements is missing or mitigated, maybe it's there, but there's not the right measure of devotion to it. What is your 
track record regarding a willingness to faithfully receive faithfully proclaimed scripture. Many of you would attest to the fact that when you started doing that was when the Lord really started to produce some serious growth in you, drastically different from what you had experienced before. Here's another expression of what your role may be. Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why do you come here on Sunday morning? Why do you attend your discipleship group? You come to be equipped. And in that moment that you're being equipped, many times in the moment, which is right and necessary, you exalt Christ. You sing because you're equipped to sing. That equipping results in exaltation. We often refer to the three E's of the church. Exaltation of Christ, which is worship. Edification or equipping, which is the saints gathering for learning, growing. And then evangelism. And no evangelism is effectively born out of anything other than proper equipping. Equipping is necessary before evangelism can actually take place. We're calling others in evangelism to to worship, to exalt. And if we're not prepared by having been equipped, we can't do that rightly. We're going to say things that don't make sense. We're going to tell them to do things that the Bible doesn't say. We're going to say silly things like, hey, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart. It's not in the Bible. But if we're equipped from Scripture, like we're doing this morning, you can go out of here and say to people, you know, you need a pastor who's faithful. You need someone who's actually equipped, complete, adequately trained in the Word of God in order to be equipped, as Paul's speaking about in Ephesians 4. And why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, not building, not increasing, not adding to the numbers, but for building up the body of Christ. You know that's your role, right? You're to be equipped. Why? So that you would strengthen, encourage you got to come here with a passion not only for worshiping Christ, but for edifying the saints. Being involved in the equipping means that you come here ready to give someone an encouraging word, to be prayed up, right? To be praying for people, to be praying for yourself, that you would come here with an attitude of service, sacrificial willingness to find that person who you know is hurting. Equip that person with encouragement and strength. Until what? until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Very similar to what we talked about earlier in Colossians 1.29, this maturity. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see that? That's equipping. You're growing in your ability to not only withstand, but to refute false doctrine. You can go back to your friends that maybe you used to hang out with, and you were steeped in that false doctrine, and now you can go back and say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's look at the Bible together. You know, I've actually got some information about this from God's Word. Let's, let's actually assess it. The person who wants to grow will do that with you. Verse 15, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, and oh, that is so important. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. How do you know what the parts are? Church membership. That's the only way you know what the parts are. People have said, this is my church. Committed. I'm willing. Where do I serve? How do I serve? How can I maximize my efforts to glorify Christ and to equip the saints? By which every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, the catalyst is love. Listen to this in Hebrews 5, really the other side of the coin. Hebrews 5.11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be 
teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Takes me back to my friend Jerry's comments to me years ago. You need to be thinking deep theological thoughts. You can't survive on milk, Todd. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And the person who does himself and others the most harm is the one who pretends to be discerning while he's really not willing to go deep and do the work. How do you respond to this further? Let me give you some practical helps on this, some really simple stuff you've already thought of, I'm sure. Number one, rest well on Saturday night. I mentioned to you last week, my friend years ago, he was a young man in his 20s, as was I at the time, and he absolutely refused to do anything past 9 o'clock on Saturday night because the Lord's Day was so important to him, because his soul was important to him, because Christ was important to him, and because the saints were important to him, and because the lost were important to him. So he devoted himself to making the Lord's Day an absolute priority by preparing for it. Rest well on Saturday night. For some of you, that's difficult, maybe even impossible, because I know for some of you, you come here straight from work. You've worked all night long. Or maybe you've worked three or four difficult shifts throughout the week. And what I've said to many of you, when you've come to me saying, my work is making it difficult and in some cases impossible to be here on Sunday, then let's pray together and let's play it right now. Let's ask the Lord to change your schedule. And I've seen him do that in many cases. But for now, do what you can. Number two, pray much for the Lord's day. Make that a priority. That you're praying that the Lord would use the faithful teaching of his word for the faithful reception of his word on your part, that you'd be equipped. Number three, listen to learn, not affirm. Listen to learn, not to affirm. There are those, and maybe you've been one of those folks, who simply listen to sound preaching to determine whether or not you agree with what you're hearing. Listen to be changed. Recognize that there are holes in your theology, and faithful teaching will fill in those holes, and sometimes it will correct wrong thinking. If not, then your pastor is useless to you, and you need to find a pastor who is helpful to you who is in fact complete, equipped for every good work. Nothing wrong with being able to affirm what you hear when it's right and you were already right about it. But listen to learn. Number four, resolve to grow and change. Resolve to grow and change. Be committed to the reality that sanctification is a lifelong process for the Christian. No one has arrived. And those who appear to have arrived are those who are convinced they haven't. Here's an example for you. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank God, speaking to Timothy, right? I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. This is an example for you and for me. Paul, speaking to Timothy, I thank my God, remembering my ancestors who were faithful to the Lord, but I constantly pray for you. I see them in my rearview mirror, and I pray that you would emulate their faithfulness, Timothy. He says in verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Do you have that deep, rich inextricable relationship, that connection with others whom you are discipling, that if the Lord were to move them to Montana or wherever, that you would be broken. You'd be grateful for what the Lord is doing, but you would long to see that person's face. I was gone less than two weeks, and I couldn't wait to get back here and see your faces because you bring me immeasurable joy because of what I see the Lord doing in you. He says, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt 
first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. How do you respond to this? You might be the faithful grandmother. Many of you are certainly the faithful mother, the faithful father, the faithful brother, the faithful son, the faithful neighbor, co-worker. Are you that person? Are you a Lois? Are you a Eunice? In whom this sincere faith dwelt that did not take in his childhood, but that the Lord used so that it would take in his adulthood under the faithful man of God's teaching. The faithful man of God who was equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. Paul, who could say to another young man, be faithful, be mature, be equipped. The Lord will use you through your faithful teaching and the faithful reception of God's people to produce godly living. Father, we rejoice in your word. We come to you with the certain expectation that you will continue to produce in us the ability to discern faithful teaching, that the man of God is in fact equipped, but also that we might live godly lives, and that's what we desire because we love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.